going to look at the Christmas story, but we're going to look at it uh, primarily from the perspective of Joseph. I feel like Joseph is kind of the forgotten, one of those forgotten about characters in scripture. No one really talks about Joseph. We talk about Mary all the time, but it doesn't seem like we talk about Joseph very often. Um, so we're going to talk about that, and then uh, of course we're going to talk a, a lot about God as well. So I actually titled this sermon, uh, Lessons from the Father. It's a play on words. Father Joseph and God the Father as well. Uh, so I was pretty proud of that. But um, yeah, it, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 1, verses uh, 18 through 25. So uh, you, if you have your Bible with you, you can open it up. Otherwise, I'm going to have it up there on the screen. But as I said, I'm going to be really trying to help us understand this situation from the perspective of Joseph and what we can learn from him. So when I read over this, I want you uh, to put yourself in the position of what it would have been like to be Joseph. Okay, think about what is it that would have been going through your heart? What is it that would have been going through your head as if you were put in a position that was similar to this? But before we do that, uh, I want to pray together. So let's, let's pray. God, we love you and we thank you that you are our father. Um, we thank you that you've given us uh, the opportunity to become your children. Lord, we thank you that um, you love us, that you're faithful to us. We thank you that um, we can trust you to always do what's right and good, no matter how much difficulty it, it may involve. Um, God, we thank you that you love us even though uh, we've wronged you. And God, we thank you for your word. We pray that uh, you would teach us from it this morning. We pray that you would be here in this room this morning, uh, that you would just clear distractions from our hearts and minds and uh, help us to be people that pay attention to whatever you have to say to us today. Uh, we love you, Lord, and we pray this in your son's awesome name. Amen. All right, so remember, I want you to think about yourself and, and how you would feel if you were Joseph in this situation. So Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son. So he called his name Jesus. All right, there's really two uh, major lessons that I want us to learn from Joseph this morning. And uh, the first one I see in, in how he reacted to this is that Joseph did a really good job of loving others even when it seemed like they had wronged him. Now, Mary didn't wrong Joseph, by the way. I want to be very clear about that. She did not do anything wrong. Uh, she was actually quite blessed to play the role that she did. Uh, Holy Spirit decided to make her the, uh, the, the one that Jesus was conceived in. That's an incredible opportunity blessing. I'm not saying Mary wronged Joseph. But remember, we're reading this from Joseph's perspective. When he learns that his wife is pregnant and he's kept her a virgin, that's not, you're not thinking the Holy Spirit was responsible. It was probably your, your first reaction. 
Um, and, and we see that really couldn't have been Joseph's first reaction either, because uh, we see that he had planned to, to send her away, uh, meaning he was going to break off the engagement, as I think that almost any person would if you found out that your fiancé was pregnant uh, and you had never slept with her. And so uh, the interesting thing about that, yeah, that word betrothed, by the way, it's kind of a word we don't use so much anymore, but it really just means engaged. Uh, as far as the relationship between uh, Joseph and Mary at this time, marriage worked differently oftentimes in that culture. It's, it wasn't always like the, oh, you meet another person, fall in love with them, and choose to get married. Not that that couldn't happen, but a lot of the time it was arranged between the two parents setting their children up together. So maybe Mary and Joseph knew each other really well at this time. Maybe they didn't. We're not really sure. Um, but what we do know is that they had been engaged. They had been committed to each other uh, to be married. And now all of a sudden, Joseph finds out that his uh, soon-to-be wife is pregnant and he has never slept with her. Now, if you were Joseph, I mean, just imagine kind of how would you be feeling in this situation? Like if you could think about the fact that you're engaged to this woman, you're, you're preparing to spend the rest of your life with this woman, and now she has a child that's not yours. Um, not only would you see the practical aspect of like, okay, yeah, I think I want to not do this, not, not going with this marriage, um, but naturally I think that you would be pretty hurt. Like you'd be pretty angered, upset, uh, and, and frankly, you'd probably feel betrayed. Uh, and if you're like most people, when you feel betrayed, you want to kind of get back at them. Like, I, I think that we have a natural bend to want to try and get revenge on people when we feel like they've wronged us in some way. And uh, at the very least, you want to distance yourself from them, and, and you don't really have much concern at all about thinking what's best for that person. But this is one of the things I think is so admirable about Joseph in this situation that we see, is that he actually still cared about Mary, even in the midst of this. Even before he learned what was actually going on when the angel revealed it to him, it says that because he was a righteous man, he planned to send her away secretly. He didn't want to publicly disgrace her. Even though in reality, like, it seems like she had disgraced him. She hadn't, but it seemed like she had. Uh, it seemed like there's probably a good chance that that was going to become public disgrace. I mean, if you didn't have an engagement that worked out, your friends naturally are going to be asking you, hey, like, why are you not marrying the girl that you were supposed to be marrying? Um, and so you think about the, the shame that Joseph was likely going to have to endure from this happening to him, and yet he was still cared enough about the other person to say, you know what, I, I don't want to make a big deal out of this. I'm going to just send her away secretly. Um, and, and by the way, what, what, if Mary had been um, unfaithful to him in this, that would have been a really, really, really big deal. It's not like today where almost everybody sleeps with each other before they get married. Um, and this time, I mean, it, it was actually in the Old Testament law, you could see that if a, if a woman married a man and, and there was no proof of her virginity, he could have her stoned to death. Um, so this was, this was a major, major thing where it's like, man, th this would have been more than just a public disgrace. It could have even potentially been uh, dangerous for her life. So he had the perfect opportunity to shame Mary if he wanted to. But in the midst of what must have been heartbreak, betrayal, shame, embarrassment, despite all of that, he chose to take the high road and plan to do what was in the best interest of her. And so once again, I want to say for the record, Mary did not wrong Joseph in any way. Um, but with this, even understanding before Joseph had the dream with the angel, I see three things that we can learn about how to love others even when they wrong us. And, and the first thing is be patient, okay? 
Joseph was patient. He did not make some super rash kind of like fly off of the handle decision, which if you learned uh, that your, your wife was pregnant and it wasn't by you or your fiance was pregnant and it wasn't by you, um, I think it would be very hard to not be rash. But you think, what if Joseph had just like blown up about this and just immediately like sent her off, publicly shamed her, brought her to the village elders, maybe even tried to have her stoned to death? Um, what, what if he had reacted in that way? You know, obviously God knew that that wasn't going to happen. Um, but it's crazy to think about how different things could be. Things are not always as they seem when somebody wrongs you. Have any of you guys ever felt wronged by a person and then come to realize later, once more details came out, that they didn't actually wrong you? That's, of course, exactly what happened in this, in this situation. Mary had done nothing wrong, but the initial reaction that Joseph is going to have is it certainly seems like she did. And so I think that we would be wise and everybody would benefit, us, the other person, the people around us, if we would be patient enough to actually gather facts about what happened in a situation before we could quickly make judgments, before we have a rash reaction, before we start gossiping about it, before we do any of those things, take time to actually figure out what went on, take time to actually pray and think about what the best reaction is that you can have to that situation. Proverbs 14.29 says, Whoever is patient has great understanding, but one who is quick-tempered displays folly. You certainly, certainly make yourself look like a fool if you get quick-tempered over something, especially when nobody even wronged you. Now, on the other hand, you might find that the person has actually wronged you. That wasn't the case here, but I'm sure that it's all happened to us before and will continue to happen to us in our lives that people are going to do bad things to us. Um, even there, if you're patient in the way that you react, you're going to set yourself up better for hopefully mending that bridge in the future. The other thing that Joseph did is not only was he patient, but he sought the best for the other person. Joseph had learned how to love others well. Um, this can be really tough, but Jesus calls us to do this. <laughs> the, the child that was inside Mary would, would be the one that says this in Matthew 5, 43 through 44. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. It's tough for us to seek that the best for people that are our enemies, but this is exactly what Jesus calls us to do. And it's cool that the man that would end up being the earthly father of Jesus, although not his biological one, the man that raised him, exhibited this. That he'd be a person that uh, would care so deeply for others that he would even pray and seek their best, despite the fact that they may have wronged him. And finally, not only was Joseph patient, not only did he seek the best for others, but he trusted God. He trusted God in the matter. Um, he, he made a decision on his own initially that he was going to send her away. But because he was patient, he had time to actually get a word from the Lord and what he should do in the situation. And so an angel comes to him and gives him a pretty unbelievable message in a lot of ways. Hey, your fiance, she, she wasn't unfaithful to you. She actually is pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Now, it, if you had a dream like that, I don't know how powerful or how vivid this dream was. I assume it had to have been very powerful and very real. Um, but still, I think it would be hard for you to, to act on that and to actually trust that. Sometimes when we read scripture, I think that we read it in a way where we're, we're just, we expect the people to always make the right decision because we know how the story turns out. Um, but the reality is, man, if, if you were in the situation that Joseph was in and you had a dream where an angel comes to you and says, hey, 
Mary was not unfaithful to you. Don't be afraid to take her as your wife. She's actually pregnant by the Holy Spirit. You'd have to wake up and still decide, was I crazy? Like, was that, was that just something going on? Am I making this story up? Is that what she told me and now I'm trying to have a dream about it? Or like, am I actually going to trust that this is, this is real? Because, I, I mean, if you think you put yourself in that situation, you're saying, man, I, I'm, I'm going to trust God and I'm going to marry this woman. I'm going to trust that she's not actually promiscuous. Because, man, who wants to marry somebody that's already being unfaithful to you before your marriage? Um, and so Joseph had to really take a big risk in many ways in deciding, okay, yeah, I'm actually going to take Mary as my wife. I'm going to trust that this dream that God gave me, uh, where the angel came and spoke to me, is actually true. And praise God that he did. But the next time someone wrongs you, I would, I would encourage you to have this same kind of reaction that Joseph has. First off, be patient. Second, be thinking about how you can seek the best. And third, as you're in prayer, like, listen to what God has to say about this. He may not give you a dream where an angel speaks to you about how to, how to handle the situation, um, but he may guide you. And it, it may come through a dream. It may come just through a, a prompting inside of you. It may come through something that you read in Scripture that day that, that's directly relevant to the situation. It may come through the advice of a wise friend. Um, but oftentimes the, the Lord has ways that he wants to communicate to us about how we can make wise decisions, especially in matters like this. And so this last idea about trusting God really brings me to the other big lesson I want us to learn uh, from Joseph, which is that he was faithful in the midst of difficult circumstances. I've already gotten into this a little bit with this idea where was he chose to trust God, he had to realize, okay, I'm going to be faithful in, in something that's not going to be an easy task. Uh, walking around in, this, in the culture with a wife that's, or a fiance that's pregnant. Um, there's, there's some uh, debate as to whether or not, uh, when, when exactly Joseph and Mary got married. You know, did they get married right after the dream? Uh, I think that the best evidence suggests that they got married actually after the birth of Christ. Um, and I'll say that because of Luke chapter 2. Uh, you can skip the next slide I have. If you go to Luke chapter 2, verses 4 through 6. It describes this. It says, Joseph went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of Bethlehem, which, to the city which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And so when I read that, the timeline seems most likely that, okay, it's time to go to Bethlehem to register for this census. And it describes Mary here as who was engaged to him. So at this time, that it's time to go to Bethlehem, she's still his fiance and not his wife. And then what happens while they're in Bethlehem? She gives birth to Jesus. Now, given that their accommodations in Bethlehem were a barn, I don't think that they were there for very long. So this leads me to believe that, man, this, the, really this whole time that, that Mary was pregnant, she was only Joseph's fiance. And so if you were walking around, even in today's culture, with, an, with a pregnant fiancé that's showing a baby belly and everything like that, I mean, th th there would be a lot of people that judge you. And you could say, whatever, I don't care about what they think. There'd be a lot of people that judge you. Even more so in this culture. Like, that, that's relatively normal in our culture. In this culture, the fact that, like, what, you're, what, what's this going on? Why are you walking around with this woman that you're engaged to that is pregnant and showing and, and the fact of the matter is, like, sometimes God is going to call us to do things that are going to make others judge us, make uh, us encounter shame from, from the world's perspective, make other people think less of us. 
even though you're actually doing the right thing. Joseph was doing the right thing in being faithful to Mary, and Mary was doing the, the right thing in, in carrying Jesus. That doesn't mean that it was going to be easy for them, and that doesn't mean that people around them would automatically respect them for that either. And I think that we face some of these same choices as Christians today. Uh, one of the biggest areas is obviously with sharing your faith. Um, if you decide that you're going to be a person that actually steps out and speaks about Jesus, people are not automatically going to respect you for that. Um, people that, that know and love Christ and see the importance of that are going to respect you for that. Um, but the, the fact of the matter is, if you decide, yeah, I'm going to talk about Jesus. Uh, I'm going to let people know that not only is he my Lord and Savior, he's not just my personal way, but he's the way. And that everybody needs to accept Christ if they want to, to be saved from God's wrath and reunited with him and to go to heaven. If you start to step out and to say things like that, there's people that are going to judge you. They're going to call you intolerant. They're going to think that you're a bigot. They're going to think that you're narrow-minded. Um, it, 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 more and more, the way I see our culture going, that's going to be less acceptable to, to make statements like that, that are just in line with the truth of Scripture. And so even there, and you doing what, what God is faith, you being faithful in what God has called you to do is not necessarily going to be easy. And, and from the world's perspective, it might bring disgrace and shame to you. The same way that I can only imagine that Mary and Joseph both had to endure a lot of grace, uh, a lot of disgrace and shame as they were walking around as a betrothed couple that was about to have a baby. Now, Joseph was faithful to take Mary of his wife in the midst of, of difficult circumstances. Uh, but he was also faithful in naming Jesus exactly what God told him to. Um, if you go back and read that initial passage, the angel is the one that tells Joseph exactly what he should name him. He said, you shall name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And uh, I think this is significant, that, that Joseph was faithful to, name, to give Jesus this name. Uh, now, once, this is something you would expect. If he believed the angel enough to, to take Mary as his wife, he's probably going to believe the angel enough to give him this name. But this is a name that has a lot of significance. And the angel even explains this uh, for us. He says, for he will save his people from their sins. And so I would say even in, in, in Joseph choosing to actively name Jesus by this name, I think it's a sign of his faith that what the angel said is true. That this son of mine is actually, in some way, even if I don't fully understand it, he's going to be the one that will save their people from their sins. Jesus is simply the Greek way of actually saying the name Joshua. Or you could even more accurately pronounce it Yeshua. Uh, it's all the same name. So Jesus, this is not like a super uncommon name. Matter of fact, there's already a really significant Bible character that was named Joshua. He's the guy that took up leadership of Israel after Moses died and actually led the conquest of the promised land long time before uh, the time of Jesus in the flesh. So it's not like Jesus is even the first one to have this name. We just call Joshua by the more Hebrew version of it and we call Jesus by the more Greek version of it. Um, why that tradition has been carried along in the West, I have no idea. My guess would be because the New Testament was written in Greek, so we probably use Jesus, and the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, so we're likely to use Joshua, which is closer to the Hebrew version. Um, but the, the point isn't about how to pronounce the name properly, whether you want to say Jesus, Joshua, Yeshua. The, the, the point is what the, the name means, for he will save his people from their sins. And so Joseph not only was faithful in taking Mary as his wife, but he was faithful in believing what the angel said about his son and giving him the name that would show who he was going to come to be. Now, speaking of, of, of believing what God said would come true, 
I want to turn our attention a little bit more now from learning about Joseph, the father of, of Jesus, kind of, um, to God the Father, our, our Heavenly Father. And uh, I want to see everything that Joseph has exhibited in this story, we see God exhibit those same kind of things, but even to a greater degree. And uh, let's start with this idea that we're on already about God, uh, being faithful in difficult circumstances. Um, you see, God is faithful to his own promises, and that's true even when those own promises are difficult to fulfill. You'll notice in this passage, they referenced what was written by the prophet. If you caught that, it talks about this all happened so that what was written by the prophet would be fulfilled. And that, that prophecy comes from the book of Isaiah, and uh, that was written over 700 years before the time of Christ. And uh, if you want to find where the prophecy is. It's in Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14. It says, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Now this prophecy, as I said, was given about 700 years before the birth of Christ. That's a long time, okay? The United States has been around for less than 300 years, if you want frame of reference. So 700 years before Christ, this is, this is what was prophesied. And uh, we as Christians easily connect this to the Christmas story because Matthew makes it easy for us and tells us this is what this is talking about. Um, but if, if you look into this, there's actually a lot of controversy uh, about this passage. Uh, a lot of times skeptics will, will turn here and say, well, you can tell that the, the New Testament authors are off their rocker because there's no way that this prophecy is talking about Jesus. And um, I, I have a lot of fun with this. I'll get into this a little bit. I don't have as much time to address this as I'd like to, but if you want to learn more about this prophecy and the controversy of how to interpret this, I'm going to post a, a paper that I wrote on it. It's about a 20-page paper on uh, how to interpret this prophecy. I'll put it on my Facebook page today if you want to see that. Um, but the prophecy was given to the king of Judah at the time. His name was Ahaz. And uh, Ahaz was out. He was preparing for war because there were, uh, it was actually northern. So Ahaz is king of Judah, which is the southern two tribes. Israel had split into two nations at this time. Jerusalem is in the south. He's king of Judah. And uh, War is on his doorstep. He's afraid that he's about to get attacked by northern Israel and also by this kingdom called Aram, which is modern-day Syria. Not Assyria, but what is Syria today. So it's called Aram at this time. Uh, and the, the Isaiah the prophet comes out to Ahaz and, and gives him this prophecy where he tells him, uh, don't worry about these two kings that, that you're worried about. They're not going to do anything to you. As a matter of fact, you need to be careful to do nothing. Just, just be calm about it. And naturally, if you put yourself in Ahaz's spot, that's a difficult thing to believe. You know, you're worried that these people are about to attack you and you're king, and you're trying to make your city as, as strong as you can. You're starting to look at military alliances. How do I protect myself? You know, it wasn't like they were a particularly strong kingdom at the time. Um, and so, so Ahaz doesn't really have faith. And, and uh, so Isaiah comes to him again, and uh, as he's struggling with his faith, God makes this offer. He says, ask me for a sign. It can be as high as the heavens or as, as low as Sheol. And Ahaz refuses to ask God for a sign. And so God says, okay, I'm going to give you a sign anyway. And this is what the sign will be. And that's where you get to Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. All right, now, 
if you think about everything I just told you there, what's going on in that? When you read that passage naturally in Isaiah, you're looking at it and you're saying, well, wasn't the sign supposed to be for Ahaz? He's supposed to be thinking that he's not going to get attacked by these kings. He's not supposed to be worrying. God is trying to tell him that he's not supposed to worry about it. And now this prophecy comes, how in the world can it be talking about something that's going to happen 700 years later? And my answer to that, you'll have to read my paper if you want to uh, get the full answer to it. Uh, But my answer to that is that Ahaz's unfaithfulness had already lost him uh, the ability to to have to to get his own sign anymore. But uh, as a matter of fact, there were going to be very hard times that were coming for Judah. They were going to survive the immediate attack that was about to come on them. But God also warned him that if he was faithless, that, that he would not stand. And so even though these immediate, uh, this immediate war that was on his doorstep was not going to be a problem for him, what would happen is that Judah would go into exile uh, in 586, so about 150 years later or so uh, from the time that this was going on, in 586 B.C., and so as they go, they go into exile, you have to wonder, has God completely abandoned us? Is he still with us? You know, at this time, both is, Israel would go into captivity in 722 B.C. with Assyria. Uh, Assyria would ravage Judah, but, but not end up being able to, take, to conquer them entirely. But Babylon would finish the job in 586 B.C. And so if you're sitting there as the people of God... Uh, remember, all the way back from the time of Abraham, God has promised you, like, I'm going to be your God, you're going to be my people. You, you see this, this uh, idea, he says, Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. Uh, he takes them out of Egypt. Uh, Moses gives them the law. They, they promise, God promises he'll be their God and that they'll be his people. And all this kind of stuff, they bring them into this land, which was such a strong connection point between them and God. And they're there in this land, and they're very unfaithful in this land. And so eventually God kicks them out of it, both Israel and Judah. And at this time, the people have to be wondering, has God forsaken us completely? Is he not with us anymore? And so what is it that God says this sign is supposed to be about? That the virgin will give birth, and you will call him Emmanuel. And what does Emmanuel mean? God with us. So in the midst of these people wondering, has God abandoned us? He says, no, I'm going to give you a sign. And it's going to remind you that I'm actually still with you. And so in this case, I don't think that when it's talking about sign, I don't think it means that he's necessarily speaking about something for Ahaz. Ahaz already had his chance to be faithful, and he, he didn't do it. So I, I believe that this is really a sign for, he even calls him, oh, house of David, I will give you this sign. He's speaking from a broader term to Israel and saying, I'm going to let you realize that even when this comes to pass, all these times from now, that I haven't abandoned you. And so 700 years later, when people look back and say, has God abandoned us? And they see this sign of the virgin giving birth, it will remind them that God is with us. And so that's how this passage, even though it was written 700 years before Jesus was ultimately meant to be a sign to the people of Israel. This is an amazing thing. And so Matthew is spot on in in his understanding of realizing, yeah, this is what this was talking about. All of this had to be fulfilled to to make sense of everything that was going on. God had to have Christ come and be born of a virgin. And he's always faithful to fulfill his promises. This one didn't get fulfilled until about 700 years after it was given, a little over that actually. But it happened. And it happened to fulfill promises that were made even longer ago. 
Uh, I don't know how many of you were here a couple weeks ago when I preached about the first time that the gospel uh, w- was ever preached. In Genesis chapter 3, this prophecy that, that God said about how the serpent will bruise the seed of the woman on the heel, but he will crush the serpent's head. And so even here, we're seeing that process play out. That as this, this boy is born of the virgin, what is that happening for? Ultimately, because this is part of the process of that seed of the woman that will come to crush the serpent, Satan, on the head. So God is faithful in fulfilling his promises, and he does not let difficulty stop him in that. <clears throat> he doesn't let the difficulty, first off, of just working with an obstinate people, right? Whether it's Israel, whether it's us, we're tough to deal with. Like, we continually rebel against him. We continually do the the opposite of what he says. We continually lack faith. But he doesn't let that stop in his his incredible mission to redeem us. And even there, not only does, does he not let the obstinate and difficult people stop him, but he doesn't let the cross stop him. I mean, if you think about that, how was the only way that redemption was possible? It was for Jesus Christ to come and and live in the flesh and to die on the cross. Why? Because he had to pay the penalty that we deserve. And the punishment for sin is death. God said this all the way back in Genesis. He said it before sin even came in the world. If you eat from the tree, you will die. And so death enters in the world through sin. Uh, We see Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Well, how is God supposed to die? How can God pay this penalty for us? Well, the only way is to become a man. God is eternal. He's, he's not mortal. And so God comes. He takes on flesh. He's, he's born of a woman. And in this process, he comes and he dies for our sins. And so the excruciating pain of the cross, not just physically, but also spiritually, that the holy, eternal God would, would suffer on the cross, the only one that's never done anything wrong, never sinned, would take the sin of the world upon him. That, to put it mildly, is a difficult circumstance. But God was faithful still in choosing to do what he said he would in redeeming us and crushing the serpent on the head and in bringing us back to himself. Now, not only is God faithful in the midst of difficulty, but he is also good to those who wrong him. You see, if Joseph was good to Mary who didn't actually wrong him, even though it seemed like she did at first, How much greater is God to us who actually have wronged him? See, we've done so much wrong that is worthy of punishment, uh, that's that's worthy of of our death, that's worthy of our separation from the Holy God. And earlier, uh, I referenced how Jesus taught us to love people that are are difficult. He taught us to to love our enemies and to pray for them. Let's revisit that in Matthew 5, 43-44. Jesus said, you have heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And I intentionally stopped reading at that verse um, so I could come back and make this point. If you go on to the very next verse, 45, he says this, so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven, for he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. So Jesus' rationale, even in telling us to love our neighbors and to pray for those who persecute you, is why? So that we would reflect the way that God already operates. 
you know, the sun rises on all of us. It doesn't matter if you've done your, if you've prayed and you've given to the poor and you've done, whatever, the sun rises for you and it rises for the guy that's wicked, that's oppressing the poor, that's not praying, that's doing every kind of sin imaginable. The rain falls, that, that's a good sense here. It's like, it's making the crops grow. He's providing. He does that for both the good and the wicked. God has continually shown patience and goodness to all people, whether they obey him or not. And that's what we call God's common grace, okay? I'm not saying that everybody is saved by, by God from their sin, although I do believe all have the opportunity to by what Jesus did on the cross. But even those that don't put their faith in Christ still gain great benefit and goodness from God. He makes it rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. And we're supposed to love our enemies because the Father loves his enemies. Read, read this in Romans 5, chapter 8. Sorry, Romans chapter 5, verses 8 through 10. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. You catch that? We were once God's enemies. And it, it's, it feels weird to say that to some degree, but I mean, this is what the, the passage is teaching. If, if we, while we were still enemies, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. You see, Jesus didn't wait on us to be the first one to make an offer of peace. He didn't wait for us to get our act together. He didn't wait for us to say, okay, well, if you meet me halfway, then I'll finish the rest of the job. No. God is so good to those that, are, that, are, that wrong him that he says, yeah, while you're yet sinners, I'll come and I'll die for you. Well, you're still my enemy. I'm going to put everything in place that's, that needs to happen for reconciliation, for this reuniting of us to take place. And so we were once God's enemies. And, and if you're not a Christian, you, you still are his enemy. And, and when I use that term, I don't mean it in the sense of God hates you. Okay, uh, we oftentimes tie those two things together. To be an enemy simply means that you have a, a goal that you're working towards that opposes the goal that another is working towards. Okay, so if you're an enemy at war, if let's take World War II, the the goal of the Nazis was to dominate Europe, and and the goal of their the Allies was to stop that from happening. They had opposing goals that contradicted each other. Both of them could not happen. They were enemies because of that. Now with that. Hatred usually comes, right? Because if you want your goal so badly and someone is standing in the way and working towards the exact opposite goal, it's natural for us to hate our enemies. And so I think we tie these two things together all the time. And so when I say that if you're not a Christian, that you are an enemy of God, it's a very accurate statement. Because if you are, if you are not a Christian, then you are not pursuing God's kingship in your life. You are pursuing your own kingship. It's the exact opposite goal. God wants to be king over your life. He wants to be united with you. He wants to be in close relationship with you where you live in obedience and closeness to him. If you are not, then you are pursuing the exact opposite goal. You are pursuing your own kingship. You are pursuing distance from him. And you're pursuing something that is opposite from what his will is. And so really, frankly, just in the simple sense of the term of enemy, if you're not a Christian, you are an enemy of God. But that does not mean that God hates you. 
You see, just as, as Jesus taught us to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us, he did this first. The Bible says that, that we love because he first loved us. And so God teaches us to love our enemies and to pray for them in the same way because he loves his enemies, which was us. Every single one of us at one point was an enemy of God. But while we were in that condition, he still chose to love us and to be good to us and to come. And that's what we're celebrating here at Christmas. That offer of peace, it wasn't a halfway thing. It was, I'm going to come and meet you where you are. Isn't this amazing that God would come and take on on flesh? He's not asking us to work our way up to him and to find him and to get to him and and for us to um, purify ourselves so much that we kind of reach this level of transcendence. He says, no, no, it's going to work the exact opposite way. The one who's already transcendent, the one who's already good, the one who's already pure and perfect and holy is going to come and he's going to take on human flesh. He's going to live among you. He's going to be with you. He's going to teach you. He's going to live a perfect and sinless life. And then the only truly innocent person to ever live is going to be murdered on a cross. And he's going to do it by his choice. Because this is what was necessary for him to be faithful, to fulfill his promise that he would defeat the serpent. And this is what was necessary for him to be able to love us in the way that he wanted to so that we would not have to be separated from him forever. And so while Joseph is a great example for us that we could learn from this morning, um, he's, he was a good dude, righteous dude. I, I can see why God chose him to be the earthly father of Jesus. Um, admirable guy. He, he was faithful in difficult circumstances. He loved people well, even when they wronged him. As much as we can learn from Joseph, God exhibits these qualities much better even. He's faithful to us when we're difficult, and he loves those who wrong him. And so with Christmas coming up, these, uh, what, two days from now, um, I really just want to kind of close with, with this idea that Christmas is about God coming to be with us so that we could go to be with him. He comes, lives among us first, and with that, he makes it possible for us to go to be with him. And so as we celebrate our good God, as we celebrate this, this beautiful fact of Christmas, let us be people that worship the Lord, and let us also be people that, that are like our Father, just like Jesus said, love your enemies, why? So you can be children of your Father, be like him. So let's be people that exhibit the qualities that Joseph did and be people that exhibit the qualities that God is, that we would be faithful in difficulty and that we would love those who wrong us. Let's pray. Um, God, we thank you that you are good and we thank you that um, you love us even when we are your enemies. Um, God, we thank you that you're faithful to fulfill your promises. And Lord, you know that, that you've already fulfilled so many of them, but the exciting thing too that we have to look forward to is that uh, there's other promises that you've made that haven't been fulfilled yet. And God, that, that we look forward to their fulfillment. We know that uh, one day you're going to do away with all sin. That one day you're, you're um, going to bring us uh, <laughs> into a, a fellowship with you that's so much deeper even than what we know now. Uh, the place there's not going to be any more sin or pain or crying or death. The former things will pass away. Uh, God, we look forward to those promises that you've made for us. But Lord, as we uh, are in this waiting period now, 
I ask that you would give us the strength and the, the courage and the faith um, to live as your children, to live as people that are obedient to you and that, that trust you, God. I pray we'd be uh, carriers of this message, the gospel, uh, that, that you came to be with us, that we could go to be with you. God, I ask that um, you, you would help us to be salt and light everywhere that we go, that you would help us to prepare people even for that day when all sin is done away with. God, we thank you that um, you make promises to us and that you fulfill them. God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for our life. And most of all, God, just we thank you that uh, our life extends into eternity with you. We love you. Uh, we pray that you'd be honored in our praise here this morning. And we pray this in your son's awesome name. Amen.